we deeply are committed to the Bible. And in fact, the first item in our statements of beliefs is this. The Bible, as comprised in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to humanity. All right, so that is top billing here at Crossroad. And around 85% of Americans, according to the American Bible Society, own a Bible, 85%. So this means that Americans read the Bible and are highly biblically literate, correct? (laughs) I wish that it were so. Scott McConnell is the executive director of a polling and research organization, Lifeway Research, and he reports the reality. He says, quote, most Americans don't know firsthand the overall story of the Bible because they rarely pick it up. Well, while about 10% of Americans have read the Bible in its entirety, about half of Americans, 53% according to Lifeway Research, have read little of the Bible. In some cases, very little, like a few verses. That's all they've read in their whole life of the Bible. And around 10% of Americans have read none of the Bible. The late social critic and comedian George Carlin said, I was thinking about how people seem to read the Bible a whole lot more as they get older. Then it dawned on me, duh, they're cramming for their final exam. Well, whether a person is young or old, I think it's safe to say that a great, great many people know the epic story of David and Goliath. There's a shepherd boy who's skilled in defending sheep, and he volunteers to stand up against a pagan enemy of God's people during a confrontation, and with great faith and the God of Israel on his side, uh, this this young shepherd, David, ends up slaying a nine-foot, nine-inch high, massive Philistine warrior, Goliath, using only a smooth stone and a slingshot. And I venture to say that a healthy majority of Americans who know this Bible story know that this same David, when he was older, became king of all Israel. And similarly, I think a great many people are familiar with David's successor, his son Solomon. It's after all during Solomon's time that the temple in Jerusalem is built. It takes seven years, massive project, vast amounts of costly stones, imported gold, imported timbers, and the result was magnificent. And so naturally, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to ancient biblical Israel, most Americans tend to know David and Solomon. I mean, that was the golden era of the old Israeli monarchy. But after that, it just tends to be a blur. And so for this morning, I I really feel from the Spirit of God that I've been led to talk on a passage in Scripture that resumes the storyline. Who followed Solomon? And what was that person like? Did God speak to him? Did God accomplish anything great through him? Are there biblical takeaways, principles that we can take from that person's life into our time today? These are the sorts of questions that our passage today will address. But as I said earlier, before we get there, I want to set the stage by taking us through two experiences, two journeys of the mind, okay? And so once you've had these two mental journeys, I think you'll be primed and ready to get the most out of our main text today. So are you ready? Okay, good. Mental experience number one. The year is 950 BC. You are Jewish, you are a citizen of Israel, and you're proud of your heritage. You're proud. Abraham, Moses, the Ten Commandments, David, and you celebrate that God gave you and your people a good, good land. It used to be called the Promised Land, 
But now that promise is fulfilled and you're living in what's poetically known as the land flowing with milk and honey. You are here. You are in the promised land and you are living the dream. But are you? But are you? Your taxes are high. Everyone's taxes are high. Everyone plays, pays a flat tax of 10%. And back when Israel was a theocracy, meaning ruled directly by God, there was a national leader named Samuel, and he came out and he warned that if this form of government should ever change from a theocracy to a monarchy, your taxes are going to be high. I read from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Uh, Samuel said, a king can take your best fields, best vineyards, olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys, and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves can become his servants. And that was prophetic, because what Samuel warned about ended up happening. And in addition to the flat tax, you, your present government, ruled by King Solomon back in 950 BC, he institutes a proportional tax as another revenue stream. After all, the kingdom now operates not just a temple, but you've got the palace, you've got an armory, you've got a large harem, all these people need to eat, you've got royal gardens, you've got royal ranches, you've got royal agricultural fields, you get the picture. This has become a big administrative state, we would say. And you back there, you proud Jewish person back in the promised land, you might be able to cope with that if it stopped there. But it didn't. It didn't. The nation's capital, Jerusalem, came out with a palace mandate. And I suppose if the same thing came out in America today, it would be called the Work Reduction Act. All right? This ancient act significantly reduced the amount of time that residents of Israel worked their crops, their herds, their businesses, and so forth. And so you ask, well, what's the problem, Pastor Rick? I mean, I, I could use more time away from making a living. Well, the problem was the mandate accomplished all this by stipulating the following. Every third month, all residents of Israel must work for King Solomon's farms and civic projects, and all without pay. Four times a year. Lucky you. You're in the promised land. Okay, that's mental experience number one, and that's all true to history. Brings us to experience number two, which is not so much a mental exercise as just being exposed to a biblical prophecy and a couple Bible characters that might be unfamiliar or less familiar. You see, there was a young man from one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he came to be noticed for his work ethic and his skill. And we're going to call him Jerry, okay? Jerry was from the part of Israel that came to contain one of its most important and revered cities. It's the centrally located city of Shechem. And his hometown, Zeradah, was not far from Shechem. And many Israelites considered this part of the country uh, holy. Uh, Shechem's a holy city. And that's where this guy hails from. 
And Jerry was down south in Jerusalem working on a civic works project for the king. It had to do with the uh, city wall. Okay, it needed some reinforcement. And he is down there, and Jerry is creating a buzz. He is getting things done. This man really knows how to hit the pavement running. And this attracts the attention of King Solomon. And so Solomon exalts Jerry and puts him over as supervisor of not one but two units of the mandatory workforce that we just talked about earlier. Well, one providential day, Jerry was walking out of the city and his life would forever change. There on a road in an open field, he encountered a prophet of the God of Israel. The prophet's name is Ahijah. And Ahijah had wrapped himself in a new cloak, a new outer garment. And when he met Jerry, whose actual name is Jeroboam, Ahijah took this coat off and he began tearing it, okay? Now, he wasn't ripping it to shreds. His rips were calculated. And in the end, he ripped his coat into exactly 12 pieces. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, starting in verses 31 and following, the words of Ahijah's prophecy to Jeroboam. We're not going to read the whole prophecy. I just want to read the part that applies to our text today. And here's what Ahijah instructs Jeroboam to do. Take 10 pieces for yourself. 10 pieces of my cloak. Take it for yourself, Jerry, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I will give you 10 tribes, but one tribe will remain his. For the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I chose out of all the tribes of Israel. Why? For they have abandoned me. They have bowed down to Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, to Chemosh, the god of Moab, and to Melcom, the god of the Ammonites. All right, you get the picture? Something revolutionary is forecasted by this prophet. And the Bible doesn't say how Solomon learned the substance of this prophecy and this episode, but we know that he definitely did. And for all of Solomon's God-given wisdom, at this point in his reign, he did not have sense enough to respect the message given through God's man, Ahijah. And verse 40 reports, therefore Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam fled to Egypt, where he remained until Solomon's death. Wow. And you thought you had a bad boss. <laughs> All right, can you imagine? Jeroboam, he comes home. How was your day, hon? Oh, it was bad. It was very bad. Really? After all that you've been getting done and that great promotion, head of two units of the mandatory workforce... Honey, my boss tried to have me killed. I'm leaving in the morning. We're out of here. You have any interest in seeing the pyramids? <laughs> you know, his life changed forever. And there he was in waiting. And it wasn't until Solomon died. And Solomon had a long reign, 40 years. But when Solomon died, it was then safe for Jeroboam to return to his homeland. Uh, recently, I was on the website of Nav Press and uh, I came across these lines. An article that said, reading the Bible turns up some surprises. Some people are surprised that the Bible does not introduce us to a nicer world. 
This biblical world is decidedly not an ideal world, the kind we see advertised in travel posters. I love that. See, the plot lines and the characters in the Bible can be messy, surprising, alarming, puzzling. But what does the Bible say about itself? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. And so I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to our main text today. It's found in the book of 2 Chronicles. We're going to look through all of chapter 10, 2 Chronicles. And I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And actually, let's read the verse earlier. We'll start in 2 Chronicles 9, verse 31, to get the historical flow here. 2 Chronicles 9.31 Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. His son Rehoboam became king in his place. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. You know earlier we talked about the centrally located city and now we have a map that uh, we can put on the screen. I want to show you where it's located. You've got Two, is, uh, two uh, arrows, the bottom arrow is Jerusalem, and you see the top arrow, that's Shechem. So that's where the nation is gathering. Solomon has died. It's time for a succession to take place, and uh, we will comment even more later about the geography because I believe it's saying something. Let's continue in our text. Uh, verse 2, when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard about it, for he was in Egypt when he had fled from King Solomon's presence, Jeroboam returned from Egypt. So they summoned him. Then Jeroboam and all Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Your father made our yoke harsh. Therefore, lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam replied, return to me in three days. So the people left. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had attended his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, how do you advise me to respond to this people? They replied, if you will be kind to this people and please them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice of the elders who advised him, and he consulted with the young men who had grown up with him, the ones attending him. He asked them, what message do you advise we send back to this people who said to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him told him, this is what you should say to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. This is what you should say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Let's pause there. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Now, isn't that the most sophomoric, male ego, one-upmanship thing you've heard in a while? I mean, no offense to sophomores. But the lingo of these young men, uh, they're, they're flatterers, and they, they flatter the up-and-coming king, and they do this while simultaneously throwing his father under the bus. But Rehoboam likes what he hears. You know, they want him to say, 
verse 11. Now, therefore, my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I with barbed whips. And I've entitled this message, The Jerk King and the God Who Oversees All. All right? Because it should be very clear. Rehoboam is a jerk. Okay? He doesn't have compassion for his people. He's a fool. He's doubling down on policies that are unpopular. And soon we'll see just what a hollow notion it is that his little finger is stronger than his father's waist. And let's continue reading. Verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, just as the king had ordered, saying, Return to me on the third day. Then the king answered them harshly. King Rehoboam rejected the elders' advice and spoke to them according to the young men's advice, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I with barbed whips. And now we come to a very key verse theologically, verse 15. The king did not listen to the people because the turn of events came from God in order that the Lord might carry out his word that he had spoken through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam son of Nebat. Now remember how I said that I believe the geography of this episode is saying something to us? Let's, let's dig into that a little bit. I've got an analogy that I hope can be helpful. Where was America's capital when we launched as a country? Anyone know? Philadelphia, okay? The Declaration of Independence was written there. You've got the meeting of the delegates. You've got uh, Independence Hall, the, the writing of the Constitution. All of that takes place in Philadelphia. Washington, D.C. did not become the capital until relatively late. The year was 1800. Well, Jerusalem is like our Washington, D.C., it became the capital relatively late, but long before the importance of Jerusalem was the importance of Shechem. Shechem is where Abra Abraham received his call from God and he offered sacrifices to God. Uh, Shechem was where Joshua led a covenant renewal of the whole nation. The books of Genesis, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges revere Shechem over all other cities in the land of Israel. Now, Jerusalem was David's capital, but when, Sol and when Solomon was coordinated, this took place in Jerusalem. So for about 80 years now, the golden age of Israel has been centered in the relatively late capital of Jerusalem. But suddenly, after Solomon dies, the people are craving Philadelphia. They're craving Shechem. Let's go back to the historically holy city of our nation. They're tired of D.C., okay? They want Philadelphia. And their mentality is, let's renew this nation that has gone adrift in gold and mandatory workforces and all these royal projects. You get the atmosphere of the country? And isn't it interesting that Jeroboam's jerkish behavior didn't start earlier? He actually goes, as we saw in verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem. And I suppose he could have just been a jerk and refused and said, if you want to meet with me, come to Jerusalem. Here I am. I'm not planning to travel. But he goes. And in going, he reveals a vulnerability. 
And he reveals that God is already at work to oppose him. Robert Hubbard Jr. says that Rehoboam even had to go up to Shechem reflected his weak, desperate political position. Obviously, Hubbard writes, God had already turned the tide against him because he's leaving the capital under the last two kings and he's going up to the home turf of Jeroboam. Remember I said he hailed from that part of the country. And you've got that prophecy of Ahijah out there that ten tribes, like ten pieces of the coat, are going to be Jeroboam's. Let's go on to verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have with David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Israel, each to your tent. David, look after your own house now. This is secession. This verse is basically a, a, a motto of secession. The country is saying, okay, we are breaking away. We don't like this, Rehoboam. We asked you nicely. You took three days to consider the request, and now you've come back, and you're doubling down. And this is a major event in Israel's history. I mean, we had a civil war and secession in our country, right? But after a, a war and after a time, the Confederacy was ultimately reunited with the nation after the civil strife. But this breaking away that we're reading about in 2 Chronicles chapter 10 would be permanent. Permanent. The tribe of Judah would be left on its own with the small bordering tribe of Benjamin also staying somewhat aligned. But basically this ends the great united 12 tribe monarchy of ancient Israel. Now verse 17, but as for the Israelites living in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. The arrogant, foolish Rehoboam still believes his strong little finger mythology of his friends because he's about to do something next that will almost cost him his life. Verses 18 and 19. Then King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, who was in charge of the forced labor, but the Israelites stoned him to death. However, King Rehoboam managed to get into his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. I mean, Rehoboam's failure is not just one bad encounter with the people, but now two bad encounters. I mean, th this seals the deal, right? I mean, they are not going to respond to him in any way, shape, or form. He sends his uh, high official in charge of the labor force, and this guy, Hadoram, he would have actually been responsible for overseeing the cutting of stones for the building of projects, and ironically, he's stoned to death. They kill him off, and Rehoboam's lucky to get out of the Shechem area alive. I want to shift now to some application insights. What are the takeaways? What are the biblical principles from this amazing history? The first insight is this. We can put it on the screen. God can and does use stu human stupidity. All right? 
Rehoboam could have been wildly successful. I mean, he sought professional counsel. The elders gave him great advice. The people craved a kind reformer. And all Rehoboam had to do was step into success. It was there for the taking. And so when we see what he does, where he goes to his frat boy friends, when he doubles down on these bad policies, it can just be flat out frustrating to watch this stuff. You know, reading these texts, it's like, what the blazes are you doing, Rehoboam? Seriously, you're going to try to launch your, your, your kingship this way? Don't be so idiotic. But the Bible comes and rescues the frustrated reader by telling us that this is from God. The king did not listen because the turn of events came from God. Uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message has God was behind all this. Uh, the New Catholic Bible is particularly good. It reads, this turn of events was ordained by God. In other words, God is allowing the plot to depart from what would normally or logically be expected politically. And we know from Deuteronomy and elsewhere that God warned the nation that if you break the first or second commandments, if you start following other gods, then national consequences are supposed to come on you. And this is exactly what was happening because the serving of Canaanite gods and goddesses was happening in the monarchy through intermarriage. The first two commandments were being broken and God really owed it to the monarchy to bring consequences. And eventually in steps Rehoboam to this national spotlight with all of his folly. And I want to point out that Rehoboam himself was a product of this bad intermarriage. His mom was an Ammonite. The Ammonites worshipped a foreign god. And so out plays the stupidity of Rehoboam, and it's through that that God accomplishes his will of bringing those consequences for violating the covenant. And I suppose there's a risk or a hazard to say that God uses human stupidity, and so you can't really put that on the screen without putting the next thing on the screen, which is, but still do your best to avoid stupidity, right? Just because God uses it, don't try not to go there, okay? Because Scripture tells us elsewhere, like in Proverbs, to learn sense, learn sense. And in Mark 7, Jesus tells people that foolishness comes from within out of a person's heart. And he doesn't say, that's okay, God will use it. No, he says, that's evil and it defiles a person, those foolish things that come out of the heart. So God uses human stupidity, but the Bible is clear that we're not to take comfort in our folly, but to call it a defiling evil and strenuously avoid it. Our third application today is this. God is true to what he says. Hear me, church. God was true to his word to David, even when the family tree went awry. The family went nuts with all this intermarriage with Canaanite uh, wives and allowing all this infiltration of bad theology and bad worship. But God was true to his word. And what's the epic word to David? I'm thinking of 2 Samuel 7, 16 very key text in the Old Testament where the, through the prophet Nathan the Lord tells David 2 Samuel seven sixteen, David your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever and to me it's the genius it's total genius how God remains faithful both to his covenant with David about the dynasty being forever and he's also faithful to the covenant of Sinai in which serving foreign gods needs to bring about national woes 
and he uses Rehoboam's folly to have most of the nation rebel and break away forever. But God simultaneously preserves enough favor in Rehoboam's life for the tribe of Judah to keep the dynasty. And wipe out Rehoboam's reign. In fact, uh, Rehoboam will reign for 17 years. It's not a bad run. You know what's amazing? This foolish jerk king, his name made it into the New Testament. In Matthew 1.16, we read that Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And everyone knows that in the room. But if you work backwards from verse 16 back to, and you trace the genealogy of Jesus further and further back, then when you verse it says Rehoboam's name twice, it says uh, Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, and so forth. So not only did God use Rehoboam's stupidity to break the monarchy of ancient Israel into two, but he used Rehoboam in this long ancestral line that would produce the stepdad of Jesus, Joseph. Joseph, who reared Jesus, was in that line to that foolish jerk king. And Joseph was a humble man. He was a devout man, a follower with fidelity to Yahweh. You know, Jesus was born of a virgin. He didn't have a biological dad, but he had an earthly dad. And Joseph was more than a mere guardian. He was more than a, a mere dad figure. You see, the Jewish scribes said that the Messiah was the son of David. Okay, that means he's in David's line. And several people in need in the Gospels, when they saw Jesus come into their town, they would cry out, and what did they say? Son of David, look on me. Have mercy on me. And when that, when that fateful Passover time came and Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem for that last time, what did, what did the crowd say? Hosanna, son of David. Right? That's messianic language. But you know, Scripture never says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in the line of David. It never does. Okay, she may or may not have been Davidic. Scholars debate it. But there is no question at all that Joseph was Davidic. He stood in line blood-wise, genetic-wise, all the way back to the man after God's own heart, King David. Scripture emphasizes this. So when we stand back and we see that, that, that line from Rehoboam and going all the way and tracing it to Joseph, who would raise up young Jesus... That's just an incredible thing. We can marvel that God had a plan and he was able to do that with still fulfilling all of God's justice, all of God's obligations, all of his covenant agreements, the consequences and so forth. He put it all together. And that leads me to my fourth and final application point. God oversees all. God oversees all. It's messy. It's puzzling. But God still reigns above it. And that's my message to us this morning. And it's, it's a piece of theology that, that in the field of theology is known as providence. God's providence. It's a noun that means the caring activity of God and overseeing human actions, human history, and all his creation. The doctrine of providence rules out that God is somehow disinterested or uninvolved. He just creates the world, but after that, let, let humans do what humans do. No. The truth 
as theologian J. Rodman Williams says, is he did not create a world and then leave it on its own. He didn't do that with creation. He didn't do that with the state of Israel. He doesn't do that in your life, in your family's life. He doesn't do that in the life of the church. He doesn't do that in the life of America. God is provident. He reigns over all. And as things play out, we can rest confident that God is, that he cares, and that he's moving all things toward his desired ends. You know, we live in amazing times, don't we? And I mean that in a negative way. We live in times where we have wars and rumors of wars. We have hookup culture and cohabitation. We have uh, harassment of religious people, religious freedom. We have non-transparency. You know, there's just so much that fills our airwaves. Talk of collusion and conspiracy and and we see actual police state tactics used. And so many of us watch this, and we're seeing what plays out in the country and just saying, what in the world is going on? We see racism. We see reverse racism. We see science deniers that say that a male was somehow born with female organs or vice versa. And we see unethical laboratories and doctors go along with all of this. And we, we may have record high recorded temperatures. We may have record high inflation. I mean, I could go on and on. We have artificial intelligence, and we're wondering uh, what type of uber deception is going to come into our lives because of this uh, artificial intelligence. We have atheists. We have jihadists. We have the mentally ill on the streets. I could go on and on, and I see this, and as a pastor, it discourages me at times. It breaks my heart. I say, God, I never thought I'd see the country I grew up in look like this. I never thought I'd be reading some of these scandalous stories about churches or ministries that have fallen into a gross materialism and so forth. And so I just have to confess to you all, I've been so enriched by this study of the ancient kings of Israel and the breaking of the monarchy and how God uses stupidity and all of this because I see a lot of stupidity and I'm believing that God has a plan. And my, my call to us this morning, church, is to Embrace the doctrine of God's providence. Believe his, that he is providently reigning over the chaos and the messiness. He did in the Bible. It's filled with everything I mentioned and probably worse, right? Uh, we, you know, this is still like a PG-rated message, right? We didn't get to parts of the Old Testament that I'd be embarrassed to read uh, up here from the pulpit. Um, so the Bible is not avoiding messiness, and evil and scandal, it's full of it, but in the midst of all that, it says, you can trust me, and in the midst of that, I'm gonna bring my Messiah through David's line, and he's gonna reign forever, which he does. And we're the citizens of that great, godly King Jesus. And if you don't know him, I wanna challenge you this morning. You will have no better government, you will have no better king, you will have no better policies than serving King Jesus. And so I'm going to pray here in a moment. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. But whether you're a Christian or not, I'd just like to lead us in a prayer that we would affirm that we are putting our faith in the God who created us, who created our world, who created the Bible, and that he's leading us to a place that he purposes and that he desires. So let's pray. 
Father, I thank you so much that we can read your word, that we can trust it and learn from it. I thank you that you're a redemptive Lord who uses people and events, unlikely scenarios, illogical turns of events, because you love us and you sent your son. And we thank you for Jesus and his purity. We thank you that he is descended from the Davidic kingship and that humble Joseph was your man to help raise him into a godly young man who would touch billions of lives. Father, we love you. We thank you for your perfect justice. We thank you that you accomplish your will as only you can. Help us to be patient, to take things one step at a time as you work out history for your ends. And all God's people said, amen. Please stand.